Hi everyone, welcome to the next page. I'm Natalie Alexander, and this is our podcast at the UN Library and Archives, Geneva. So today, Dr. Elizabeth Science, a pediatrician and liaison officer for the UNODC, or the United Nations Organization on Drugs and Crime, at the World Health Organization, joins us for a conversation with Karen Lee on the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. How do global efforts on drugs and crime actually relate to the SDGs? And vice versa, why do our efforts to achieve the global goals matter for prevention and treatment in this field? Dr. Science specializes in drug dependence treatment with a special focus on prevention, treatment, and rehabilitation. And she speaks on this issue from the perspective of the SDGs and how quality education, gender equality, and decent work and economic growth are all intertwined in these efforts. She also speaks on the role of multilateralism and how these two bodies, the UNODC and the World Health Organization, advance work through the lens of both justice and health. It's an interesting insight into how interconnected the SDGs really are and the importance of collaboration. Hope you enjoy. Let's take a listen. Hi, everyone. Today, I'm so excited to welcome Dr. Elizabeth Sands, who is the liaison officer for the UNODC at WHO. So welcome. Thank you, Karen. Good morning. Good morning. So could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you came to dedicate your work and research in drug dependence treatment and rehabilitation? Thank you, Karen. That's a very nice question. Well, first of all, thanks again, and I'm very happy to be part of this uh, podcast. I'm a medical doctor and pediatrician by background, and then I moved into public health because of this idea of having an impact in the larger population. Yeah, that was my drive. I worked previously back in my country in Venezuela with PAHO, with UNFPA, but because of family reasons, I moved to Vienna. And um, in Vienna, there is the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, with which I work nowadays. They have um, a health branch that deals with prevention of HIV for people who use drugs. And that's what I thought I could fit. But then I discovered all these area of prevention and treatment of drug use disorders. I managed to start working back 14 years ago with UNODC in the drug treatment area and immediately realized how important it is for the public health dimension. And I know that we're going to be talking about that. And moreover, the, the interesting thing is that recent research has showed us the trajectory in the development of drug use disorders and how these start in very early age. Sometimes the changes in the brain even occur during pregnancy. So I very much realized, wow, addiction, uh, drug dependence is very much a pediatric disease or at least a health issue in which pediatricians and people working with children have a big and important role to play. So this is it. This is what life somehow brought me to work in this very important and I would say fascinating topic. Amazing. I really do think that it's so interesting to hear about your trajectory and also how your different interests kind of led you to where you are today. It's, it's really funny how life works. 
That's it. That's it. That's interesting. And yeah. You find you find for me it has been like because for many years I thought, oh wow, this issue is very tough. You know, it's a very complex. Um, you know, we will talk about that. There is a lot of stigma, discrimination against people who use drugs and with drug use disorders. So you know, oftentimes I felt like, wow, from the emotional point of view, it's difficult. Yeah, and and there are many deficits in the health system when it comes to covering the needs for people with these kind of problems. But then when I looked at it in that perspective, we are talking about something that really can affect a whole individual's life from childhood, the dynamics in the family. So for me, it was like it took the dimension of a purpose. And that has been fascinating as well. Amazing. So that actually perfectly segues into my first question, which is, you know, the topic of drug dependence and abuse is often stigmatized, as you mentioned. And as a result, the subject is prone to misconceptions, misinformation and misrepresentation. I think it's also often seen as a topic that is you know, reserved only for health and medical experts such as yourself. And it doesn't have much to do with the everyday person. But why is it important for everyone to know about the work towards prevention, treatment and rehabilitation in drugs and health? Thank you, Karen. That is very interesting, your question. Well, first of all, when we talk about drugs and we talk about prevention and or treatment, people tend to think that, yeah, we need to inform people about drugs. We need to tell them which are these substances, what are the effects, and why they are dangerous. And in fact, this is an important part of the work. And uh, the drug control system and the three conventions on narcotics and psychotropics precisely were established by member states to have a framework to protect people from the negative effects of these substances. However, when we understand what I already mentioned before, what are the factors that contribute to create the conditions or what we call the vulnerabilities for individuals to eventually, when they come in contact with these substances, start using them. But remember that only one in 10 people that start using drugs may develop a drug use problem or drug use disorder. So not necessarily everybody that uses a drug will develop it. This is very important to mention. But then is how to protect people, how to identify all these elements that bring people to the vulnerabilities of developing a drug use disorder and then doing something. And I refer back to my comment about the pediatricians and about people working with children, teachers, the communities, etc. So just to put us somehow in the scope or the magnitude of the problem we are talking about, according to the World Drug Report that is produced every year by the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, around 300 million people between the age of 15 and 64 would have used an illicit substance the year before when asked. And out of this number, last year's World Drug Report, close to 37 million people are in need of treatment, meaning that they already have a problem with their drug use. And when we talk about a problem with their drug use, we are talking about people that are already uh, having problems in their jobs or have lost their jobs, people that have financial problems or disruptions in the family or violence or anything that is created by the dynamics of a person that is using a psychoactive substance, yeah, a substance that is altering the, the state of their mind. 
Now, one of the dramatic situations is that of these 37 million that need assistance, only one in eight get the assistance that they require. And these, again, bring us to the topic of stigma and discrimination, because not only there are no sufficient uh, services available, oftentimes we see that the access to these services is limited. So when we talk about, again, education, and I think that if we manage to, you know, overcome this barrier that is imposed somehow by the stigma, by the judgmental attitudes that we have towards the people who use drugs and develop drug use disorders, then we can see how prevention can be done from very practical and sometimes easy measures such as listening to your children. And I take the opportunity of mentioning UNODC's Listen First campaign, devoting quality time to your children, like, for example, spending time having dinner with them, keeping abreast with their development at school, you know, promoting healthy lives. That is what prevention is about. It's not about talking about the drugs and be careful if you use these. And for many years, prevention strategies, and unfortunately, in many countries, we still see this with a lot of scary tactics yeah, and techniques. Uh, if you use drugs, your brain will be fried in a, in a pan or it doesn't work. It doesn't work because when the brain has been changed, let's say in a 14-year-old adolescent, the pregnancy was very stressful for the mother. So that little brain in development was exposed to a lot of stress hormones like cortisol. If that child was not uh, properly attached to the mother in the early days following birth, if the love, because there are many ways of expressing love, and I, I would say that all parents express their loves in their own very specific ways, but uh, sometimes even the negative actions are driven by love for the children. But the important thing is the perception that the child has about love and acceptance and building confidence, because it is then later, usually in adolescence, that when they are exposed to the substances, they have the capacity of saying no. I won't take that. But that's why we talk about very complex mechanisms that lead to those vulnerabilities. And those factors include genetics, include early onset of mental health disorders, include the small family group dynamics, but also the community. What is that community dynamics? What are the interactions between those children with other children? What are the economic activities or the activities in the community where that child is growing? Is there a lot of drug trafficking, for example? Is there a lot of drug consumption in the community? So again, it's not telling a child don't use drugs that will end up preventing that child or that adolescent from using a drug is much more than that. And when we talk about treatment, then it is important to understand, first of all, that once a person develops a disorder, like I said, not everybody develops a disorder. There are several, let's say, categories from problematic drug use to, to what we call the extreme of dependence to a substance and addiction, which is a very specific stage in which there is a compulsive behavior towards the use of drugs that dominates every other aspect of a person's life. So there's a difference between dependence and addiction. Yes, a person becomes dependent on a substance and oftentimes it's because of the properties of that substance. For example, opioids. Once a person uh, starts using opioids, 
opioids per se develop something that is called tolerance. So because of tolerance, they need to increase the amount of the drug that they consume in order to get the same effects. So that person becomes dependent. But not necessarily a person needs to use a particular substance for a specific period of time to develop addiction. And therefore, because addiction is a complex mechanism that is related to the reward system in the brain, addiction is a mechanism, a compulsive behavior that dominates every aspect of a person's life meaning people don't eat, people don't sleep, people don't enjoy go doing exercise, don't go to the park, because the only thing is using the drugs, mm -hmm. using the substance. There are very interesting research studies showing that there is a point in the evolution of the addictive disorder in which the person no longer uses the drug to feel good. It's because they feel so bad when they don't use it because of the withdrawal that they need to continue using in order to minimally function. And those are complex mechanisms that the reason I'm mentioning this is we're talking about education and about understanding. If people understand that this is what is happening to that person, then you become more understanding, mm. more compassionate. Mm. Then you think that that person, because it's very easy to say this person did this to herself or to himself. He's using drugs. This was his choice. No. It's not his choice and it's very difficult and complex. And therefore, I was talking about the complexity, the chronicity, the relapsing nature of drug use disorders that require not only long term, but also multidisciplinary and multisectorial approaches. And this links to our conversation on, on the SDGs because it's not only a health issue. It's a social issue. It touches on the financial. It touches on labor. One of the first things in adolescence, when they start using drugs, one of the first signs is the drop in the school grades. And the same for people in their works. It's absenteeism. It's not being productive at work. It's eventually losing the job. And another important thing that I would mention is that many people who use drugs depending on the national legislation or because they are engaged in drug-related criminal activities to maintain their drug use, end up in prison. And that is an additional component of this vicious cycle of drug use, keeping, you know, a social, I'm going to use a term, I don't think it exists, but like a social impairment mm. sort of condition where dynamics, social dynamics are all entangled around the drug use and, of course, impair or hamper the possibilities and probabilities of people to achieve the development goals. It's a complex thing. And, and I believe that when people can see that, in a person, the whole areas of a person's life being affected, then the attitude and the response to these people has to be different. Mm. No, thank you so much. I think you covered so many bases in your answer, but I think at the end of the day, what I'm taking from this is that really education and the willingness to learn and understand and even just show a little bit of compassion is so key in this all. And those kinds of things are things that everyone can do. Thank you so much for 
again mentioning the SDGs because, as we all know, the SDGs are not only 17 individual goals, but they are also 17 interlinked global goals designed to be a blueprint to achieve a better and more sustainable future for all. And we already kind of touched upon how education plays a part in this realm. But it is also quite obvious that the issue of drug prevention, treatment, and rehabilitation connects most with SDG 3, which is the Global Health and Wellbeing SDG. But I wanted to ask you, how does it also connect with even something like gender equality, which is SDG number 5? Thank you, Karen. Well, I have to say that since I have been working in the UN for so long, I remember the Millennium Development Goals and how nice it was in the environment of working in the UN to have something specific to work towards. But then the sustainable development goals, even from the image that they brought, you know, this very colorful and the definition of the goals, I was thrilled, honestly, on a personal note, the effect that you have, you immediately start seeing the interconnectedness of the topic, the specific topics that you deal with as a member of the UN family of agencies with other areas of development. And for example, UNODC, uh, one of our main areas of work is advocacy. We advocate, you know, raise awareness about the dangers of drugs or the threats of these substances, uh, but also the importance of recognizing as chronic disorders etc., uh, the importance of engaging women, but the SDGs provide the perfect tool to see those connections, to see how if we work towards preventing drug use and treating drug use disorders, we're going to have an impact on uh, a person's life in general. So you asked me specifically about uh, gender, but I want to mention that within SDG 3, there is SDG 3.5 that specifically calls for prevention and the treatment not only of drugs, but also includes alcohol. Mm. And this is for us very important because it has given visibility to this issue that we for so long have been working on. Now, in regards to women, I I want to talk again about some numbers coming from the World Drug Report. Uh, Remember I told you only one in eight people that needs treatment gets that treatment. Well, guess what? One of every three persons that have a drug use problem is a woman. But only one in five of those that get treatment is a woman. Access to treatment services are usually even more limited for women because, one, they face the double stigma and discrimination. This is particularly true when they are pregnant because they tend to be blamed for getting pregnant, knowing that they are using drugs, or because they use drugs while they are pregnant. And the truth is that these women, like any other woman, they love their children. They want to have children. They get pregnant and even if on desire pregnancies, they they want to take care of that child. But I want to go back to it is a chronic, complex, relapsing disorder. So they are dealing with their own challenges as a person who has a drug use disorder, plus the challenges of a pregnancy, the challenges of a delivery, and then later on in, after the baby is born, the challenges of raising one, two, as many children in this situation. So, yeah, women find especially difficult circumstances. Also, depending on the culture, depending on the religion, 
depending on the social dynamics, sometimes even induced because, you know, women are sometimes more diagnosed with like mental health issues, like anxiety. And it is this, the, the, even the medical professionals that are giving them these substances that if not limited in, and I'm referring specifically to some substances, then a woman can become dependent. Or maybe women are more expressive when they are in pain, for example, so they tend to be medicated more than men. So unwillingly, they can become dependent on these substances. So why blame them? The other thing is many women engage in drug use because they have a partner who is a drug user. And another important connection in regards to gender is that in many of these couples where there is drug use and drug use problems, then there is violence. So in short, women are double discriminated and stigmatized because of the drug use. So it's a vicious cycle, difficult to tackle. And women, particularly women, are affected. We could talk even more about this. For example, when the drug of use opioids, these mothers have to struggle with having an opioid dependence. Luckily, there is treatment for that. There are pharmacological and psychosocial support measures to treat women who are dependent on opioids without being pregnant, but also when they are pregnant. And then when the child is born, these babies are usually born also dependent. It's called neonatal abstinence syndrome. So these children can be treated, these newborns can be treated. And the idea is that these mothers receive the support that they need, you know, through pregnancy, through childbirth, and then while uh, raising their children with support, with love, with, but for that, the health, the social welfare, the social support system need to be ready to respond and, you know, getting completely away from the, from the stigma and the judgmental attitudes towards them. Wow. I, I'm learning so much. I think um, it's so true that um, as women, not only will our, maybe our treatment will look different, but also our needs outside of just medical needs are also different. And so that affects as well how rehabilitation goes, how recovery goes, how healing goes. Of course. And when we talk about drug treatment, we're talking with psychiatrists, with psychologists, with sociologists. It requires a person to really open up to their deepest feelings and dynamics. Sometimes culturally, it's very difficult for these women to already disclose their, their drug use status. But if the system is not ready to adapt to those specific needs, then these women are completely left out. And that's why we talk about limited access to treatment services. So, for example, treatment services need to understand these women have probably not only one, more than one child. They need to take care of the house. Many of them work. And then in addition, for some of them, they need to go relatively often, even sometimes daily, to get their medication to treat their, their drug dependence. So if you don't offer them the option of childcare. How can they comply with the treatment? You know, we have an expression, put the other person's shoes on so that you can really understand the complexity of the needs, which are simple. They can be very simple to resolve. But for that, you need to understand, be compassionate, be open-minded. For example, waiting lists for people with drug use disorders are a catastrophic thing to do in a treatment center because 
you limit opportunities for them. Not everybody is ready to go to treatment. There are different phases of change during the evolution of the drug use development. And, uh, you know, when a person is ready to go and ask for help, if they call and nobody picks up the phone, if they knock on the door and the treatment center is closed, you lose that patient. Of course, UNODC and WHO have developed international standards for treatment of drug use disorders, which outline and describe very clearly the different settings of the health and social system, where depending on the stages in which the addiction problem is, then you can respond. And there is one particular, which are the outreach teams, yeah, and the outreach teams, because of the behaviors of these populations, they go out. They try to communicate, try to engage them in treatment. But again, going back to women, in all of this, women need to be seen with a particular lens, mm -hmm. a lens that looks into all the, not only, we, we tend to think women only have a special reproductive health issues. No, reproductive health is probably crucial, but it's much more than just reproductive health when we talk about services for women, and in particular, women with drug use disorders. So we briefly, or you briefly, touched upon the aspect of socioeconomic status and welfare. So that's great because we can now lead into SDG number eight, which is about decent work and economic growth. So how does this sustainable development goal intertwine with this bigger picture of drug treatment, and not just in relation specifically to women, but in general as a whole? Yeah, thank you, Karen. This is very important. Um, indeed, um, we can see these from two dimensions. One, unemployment, lack of opportunities. I'm going to mention a particular group, like, for example, migrants and, and refugees and displaced. You know, there is this say, no, there is more drug use amongst these groups. No, it's about opportunities. It's about integration. It's about having, you know, a livelihood in your own country or in another country. So definitely not having a decent job one that really provides for your own individual needs and the needs of your family, could be linked to despair, to anxiety. Again, remember that we're talking vulnerabilities. A person does not become addicted or dependent to a drug by choice. So it's those conditions that create the fertile ground for the initiation of drug use. Because, call of warning, not only adolescents start using drugs. We can see this in elderly people, yeah, because they are lonely or because they are over-medicated. Um, you know, there is no age to start using drugs. So a person that undergoes a catastrophic event in their lives is very vulnerable. And the drugs are always there. The drugs will always be there. Those that you can buy in the supermarket, like alcohol and tobacco, but the drugs will always be there, is the circumstances around the person. So in that sense, having decent jobs is very important. And on the other hand, one of the first areas that is affected when people develop a drug use disorder or an addiction is losing their jobs. So that's when they fall into this spiral that brings people to the very unfortunate situation that we oftentimes see people in the streets with, you know, homeless, uh, without families. And getting out of there is very challenging. And that's why when we look at the international standards, again, of treatment, sometimes we need to start with the very basic assistance, you know, providing these people for a place to take a shower, a warm soup during the winter, blankets. But 
as soon as possible, bringing them out of that, engage them in treatment, you know, in, and there are many modalities that adapt to the severity, to the evolution, to the condition of the person, and to what really works, because that's another thing. In treatment of drug use disorders, not one size fits all. That's like a slogan, but it's true. So um, again, going back to, to the issue of employment, once you manage to provide the basic assistance, engage this person in treatment, then once the person is stable, you need to think, okay, what comes next? And then we talk about rehabilitation, we talk about reintegration. So because of the long history of these people, some of them have not developed a particular skill or don't have a specific knowledge. So good treatment programs include all these components, include vocational training, include, uh, you know, the spiritual area of development of a person, include, uh, you know, working in groups. And eventually should also include developing coordination mechanisms to support people to be allocated to job opportunities. So when we talk about social dimension of treatment, it is related to that. If this person needs a place to live, this person needs a job so that they can generate some income to pay for a place to live and etc. So again, that's the beauty again of the SDGs, all these things are connected. Thank you. Yeah, even in treatments and approaches alone, those things have to be adapted and also are multidisciplinary and multifaceted, which is such an important, I think, point to remember. So I wanted to ask, what is the UNODC's role as well as the WHO's role in engaging and encouraging this kind of multilateral action, but also dialogue? on drug dependence and treatment. Thank you, Karen. In what we call the drug control system, both agencies have a very particular role. UNODC as a secretariat to the Commission of Narcotic Drugs and WHO in its role as the health agency that needs to look into the substances to research and provide the commission or the drug control system with the recommendations as to which substances have to be scheduled and put into this system of control. Specifically in terms of prevention and treatment, both UNODC and WHO, because of their complementary roles, have been working together. You know that UN agencies, we have our specific mandates and we have, therefore, our counterparts. So for WHO, is the Ministries of Health, but for UNODC, is Ministries of Justice and Interior. So this is leading me to something very interesting. Because since the time when the international conventions were endorsed by the member states, countries developed their own legislation to respond to these threats. So still in many countries, but particularly from the beginning, the response to people with drug use or drug use disorders was coming from this justice, law enforcement, criminal justice system. So, of course, that raised lots of questions with regards to human rights, to why people are going to be incarcerated. These people require treatment. Now, we have several documents making the case for that. So, as we have evolved in knowing more about the nature, about what is causing really the changes in the brain and the preconditions to drug use disorders, we have seen this increasingly important role of the health system. So by working together with WHO, we have managed to bring UNODC's mandate, which is mostly to contribute to global peace and security, the human rights, etc., 
to bring it down and working together with WHO, moving countries towards a response to drug use and drug use disorders that is led by ministries of health. Working, remember we said multi-sectorial, multidisciplinary then, but by being led by the ministries of health, we are giving the public then this message also. This is a health issue, but it's not only a health issue, it's complex and requires other sectors to be involved. So that's why the SDGs, but also the structure of the UN system and the collaboration between UN agencies is crucial. The way I see it now is that the drug problem is really at the center of many. When we look at things from the perspective of the harm that drugs are causing in people, they are at the center of all these other development areas. Thank you so much for sharing that because just like you mentioned, of course it is so much so a health issue that needs to have the participation of other health ministries and health professionals and health research not only to advance uh, better treatment and better rehabilitation, but also the social aspect of what people view it as. That's it. Absolutely. You know, as we mentioned, the Sustainable Development Goals and Agenda 2030 is a collection of global goals that require the cooperation and collaboration across borders, across sectors, across teams and individuals. And of course, the UN and its many specialized agencies, just like we mentioned, specifically the UNODC and the WHO, are very committed to advancing not only the conversation, but the participation of multiple actors in realizing these goals. But I also wanted to ask how we and all of our listeners as citizens, as individuals, can contribute to the goals we spoke about today in the context of drug treatment and uh, rehabilitation. Thank you, Karen. Um, well, listen, this question has become so timely for me because yesterday our executive director, Ms. Gada Wali, launched the UNODC strategy for the 2021-2025. And this is particularly important because for the first time, Ms. Wali really put a lot of emphasis in this new strategy for our agency to be participatory in its development so that we in UNODC have developed in the process this sense of ownership. And, you know, her words are still echoing in my mind when she called us to devote to the implementation of the strategy, to think broadly, to cooperate. But she also highlighted the challenges that we have, because it means getting out of our own little boxes and precisely start looking at other UN agencies, at other international and collaboration mechanisms, and engage them in the work of UNODC. In my role now as UNODC liaison officer in Geneva, working with WHO, one of my most important activities has been precisely to bring to the Geneva ecosystem the information about UNODC because the headquarters of the agency are in Vienna by presenting UNODC to this rich ecosystem where not only UN agencies but also other international organizations, there is a large number of civil society organizations working in incredible variety of topics, of issues. So in that sense, it's really fascinating to be in this moment and time. So again, your question is also for the general public. The general public, I would say, don't see issues of crime and justice as something that is not yours. When we understand 
where these things come from, then we can get involved from our little hops, from whatever activity we are doing in the world. Because you know, disease mandate is very broad. You know, we cover not only the world drug problem, but also organized crime, corruption, and economic crime. You know, we have, we are also guardians of the UN Convention Against Corruption. We support combating terrorism, but also crime prevention and criminal justice, and it goes broad to cover issues related to wildlife uh, crime, to cyber crime, to border control, container control. So UNODC has really a very, very broad mandate. So invitation to the public to look into our website, to look into the newly launched strategy. Even Ms. Wally's statement is there and it's very nice the way she presents our strategy and to get engaged, to get engaged into these topics, which are definitely when properly addressed can really contribute to a better world and a safer world. Thank you. I hope that this podcast can also become a resource to our listeners to learn more and to really understand and realize it's true. This is not just an issue that is separate from me, but really involves and needs the involvement of everyone. Absolutely. So are there any final thoughts before we close? Um, If you would like our listeners to take one thing from our conversation today that was so rich. Uh, (laughs) So it might be a bit hard, but what would that be? Oh, Karen, I think probably I have mentioned it, but probably it can happen to anyone. Mm. You know, um, there are countries in the world, I don't want to mention any in particular, where rarely you will find one family that has not been touched by drug use and Mm. drug use disorders. And so it can happen to anyone. But the message is don't panic. It is an issue that there are solutions. It's just be compassionate. Be compassionate, be open. So whilst it is important to learn about drugs, it's important also not to develop an aversion and no, this will never happen to me or my family and we are the per. No, no, it can happen to anyone. So the more people learn about this, of course, it's good to learn about these drugs, what, what they are, what are the effects. But most importantly is to know why would my child, my adolescent, or myself, or my grandmother eventually start using these substances and then think about that. I would say please be proactive in helping reduce the stigma and discrimination against people who use drugs and with drug use disorders, particularly women, for all the issues that we have discussed before, and be inclusive rather than judgmental. You know, if you are in a health service, and as a doctor, I can tell you, and there are studies also showing the rejection that even health professionals have towards people with drug use disorders. So wherever you are providing a service, either health or social, be open that when a person that may have a drug use disorder have needs. So be open, be receptive, be compassionate. Yeah. And if you're a parent, just to close as a pediatrician that I am, and because we have this campaign, Listen First, that I invite everybody to look at in our website, and there is Twitters and all sorts of communication strategies. If you're a parent, listen to your children. 
devote and spend quality time with them. Even you don't need to give expensive presents to your kids for them to feel loved and show them that you love them. Show them, tell them that you love them, that you care. And it doesn't matter what age, even if they are 18, 19, and and they will not react (laughs) positively to you trying to give them a kiss or a hug, do it because they will get the message that you love them. Um, so there are other things. UNODC will soon launch a specific strategy for Africa. I mean, that this is out of, of what I'm saying, but I didn't want to forget to mention that. And here I am in Geneva. Whoever is in Geneva that would like to contact me, I'm happy to get my email. You know, we can e-meet. I'm completely at the disposal of anyone who wants to know more about my job, about what I do, but also getting them connected to the, to the colleagues at large. Thank you, Karen. No, thank you so much. And we will be sure to link all of the resources, including your contact info and also the UNODC resources and the WHO resources down in the podcast notes. So please check them out after this episode. So yes, thank you so much again, Dr. Sands, for joining us and for really speaking about the SDGs in this context. It was great learning so much from you and really seeing how these goals are on the ground and how we can really collectively advance this kind of positive and sustainable future. Thank you. So that was Dr. Science speaking with Karen Lee. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can head to the show notes for links to more information from Dr. Science and the UNODC. And if you like this episode of the Next Page podcast, please don't hesitate to leave us a review or a comment on the episode. We do love to hear from you. And if you want to keep up with us here at the UN Library and Archives Geneva, you can follow us on our Twitter at UNOG Library or on Facebook. Just search for United Nations Library and Archives in Geneva. Until next time, take care and see you soon for another episode.